We're not parents, but some of our best friends are. And we're here to share wisdom and observations from an unbiased non-parental I'm James. I'm Thomas. We're two non-parents interested in the world of parenting. This, this is, is Dink. Dink. You know, James, I was talking to my parents this morning and we were reflecting on my experience coming to college and then subsequently my sister's experiences coming to college and how difficult that was for me. And my parents also reflecting on how much they felt they knew what to do to prep me for that and to support me. Mm. But in retrospect, some of the things they didn't understand. Um, And it got me thinking about how, on one hand, both of them went to college. So they had that experience. And yet the world changed a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the time they went to college and when I went to college. And so the circumstances look similar. And so as my my dad was saying, he's like, I knew what I needed at 18. Mm. And so I just made the wrong assumption that that is exactly what you needed as well, forgetting that you're an individual. And a part of that is about being an individual, but a part of it is also about being in a different generation. Mm. And I think that is one very interesting thing about parenting. Inherently, there is this intergenerational relationship In a society where we actually don't have a lot of deep intergenerational relationships Mm. very often. And so I'm just curious, are there ways that you've seen intergenerational differences show up in your relationship with your parents? And if so, how? Wow, Thomas, uh, you ask a question that feels like one I should have revisited a lot. (laughs) Or should have thought about a lot, especially as someone who is doing a podcast about parenting. The first thing that actually comes to mind is, I know you specifically use the word intergenerational. Mm. And when I think about the differences I have with my parents, uh, and and my mind does go to like conflicts, Mm. like conflicts that I had growing up, Mm. conflicts I feel like I still have now in terms of the ways I feel have different values, the way we try to communicate. I actually don't think of it as intergenerational Mm. uh, challenges but actually like intercultural challenges. Mm. As you know, my parents uh, are immigrants. They grew up in Taiwan. Uh, They moved here for grad school. Mm. And, you know, I was born here. And your question actually makes me, like actually gives me some lightness. Mm. And in particular, I'm actually examining how when I view it as like intercultural challenges, it feels like more of a tug of war of like which Mm. culture is right. Mm. Again, I know that's not quite, that's not right, but like that's actually something viscerally that comes up. I wonder Mm. if it is something that's related to the the challenges of immigration and what's tied up with that is like colonialism or or like racism, I guess. But when I think about it as intergenerational, there's actually something that feels more neutral about that, Mm. which is that like, of course, as time passes, things are going to change. Yeah. And somehow intergenerational conflict or intergenerational changes in values and the ways we do things seem softer mm. and some, somehow more easy to accept mm. than mm. intercultural changes. But of mm. course, I'm a, I'm a product of both of those. Yeah. My parents are from a different generation. My parents are from a different culture. And I guess I'm buying a lot of time to think about like, whoa, I've not really thought about all the ways the ways we think about career, the ways we mm. think about relationships, the ways we think about values, it's likely a mix of those two and mm. how 
I actually want to spend more time to break down mm. um, what those differences are mm. and some of the origins of those differences. Mm. Mm. So instead of just taking time to think about that more live, <laughs> yeah. why don't we actually look at a question that I think gets on this theme? Oh, I this love it. Third installment it. from our friend Matt. Ah. For some of us who are immigrants, first or second generation, we were taught that education was the only path to a good life. For us parents who may no longer feel that way, acknowledging that education may have helped us feel socially mobile and has given us choices, what is the balance between pushing our kids versus teaching them to be secure and letting them be creative in whatever they choose to do? Thank you. Hmm. You know, as I... um listened to that question again, and I've listened to it before, I was struck that I'd heard it as an intergenerational question before, but it could have definitely been an intercultural one as well. He opened with the context of being an immigrant or a child of immigrants and like that being um, the point of difference. And interestingly, what struck me is I think how much it feels important to me to distinguish between what those are. But is it? Is, does it really matter? Yeah. Um, I, or is it really more around picking the lens that is most helpful? Because hmm. I think fundamentally, it is interesting for me, probably mostly academically, to think about why my parents feel the way they do yeah. and I do, to the extent it helps me get to this place. But I don't think I need to understand to get to this place, which is that these are both valid. Yeah. And the question isn't what's right or wrong, mm -hmm. but rather do I really understand the needs that are being expressed on the other side? Mm. And this has been a theme of our podcast, I think, so far the last couple of weeks, like going back to the question of what are the needs that I'm hearing? What are the needs that I have? But as I reflect on Matt's question, I think about, well, what were the needs that parents who are pushing education mm -hmm. had? And what's interesting is, without making any assumptions... I wonder if they're not that different mm. than the needs that Matt has for his child. They're just expressed differently. Mm -hmm. At least I certainly know from my parents, the focus on education and a career were based out of a need to feel like their kids were safe, mm -hmm. that their kids were going to be okay in the world, that they were protected, that they would have the opportunity to live a fulfilled life. I think those are certainly the things I still want for myself and for um, all my parents' kids. But my idea about the most effective way to pursue those in the world has fundamentally changed. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if even before we get into the debate on what the right path is, there's some amount of coming togetherness yeah. that can come from just acknowledging the shared needs yeah. that might be leading us in different places. Yeah. Oh, there's so much there I want to react to, Thomas. Uh, when I think about the question, I think about like the conflict that comes up when you love someone else mm. and you have a differing opinion. Mm. And maybe if we think about the origin, is it because of different culture? Mm. Is it because of a different generation? It can be helpful, but also can be distraction from what at the core we need. Mm. And also when you talk about the, 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 the framing of needs, I know oftentimes when I, when I think about needs in relationship, I can often jump to like, what do I need for the other person? Like, mm. what do I need for my child? What do mm. I need for my friend? What mm. do I need for my parent? But even then, that's yet another distraction. Mm. I'll start with, what do I need? Mm. Like, 
going back to the sense of stability or security, I do think it's a different question of what do I want for my child to feel secure mm. versus what are the ways I feel secure? Mm. Those are both valid questions, mm. but I wonder if those have slightly different answers. And I'd be so curious um, as parents who are responsible for both themselves mm. and for someone else, how might they break apart that question? Because mm. those are two distinct questions and they might have the shared answer, yeah. but they also might have different answers as well. I'm, I'm reflecting uh, just on the line that you said, like just the uniqueness of being a parent and being responsible for someone else. Mm-hmm. I think that's one unique situation where for at least a number of years, you're responsible for determining yeah. what the needs of another person are. Yeah. So you figure out how best to, best to fulfill them. And then that kind of fades over time as they become their own person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it isn't black or white. It's not about like, hey, bad to anticipate needs. If I was just hanging out um, with Lena and Zach earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember, Lena asked us. Episode two. Episode two. Well, little Joseph is here in the world. Um, he's absolutely beautiful. Oh. Um, I As I watched her take care of him, it is so clear that like it is on her <laughs> to figure out and determine every single need every moment of the day and then help to fulfill that to keep him alive. And just looking at that almost symbiosis in their relationship now and then playing that until he eventually will become his own person just kind of maybe reflect on that unique challenge of parenting yeah. where that, that shift happens. And I guess at some point though, we are going to end up at the point that you just called out, which is when we deeply love someone but disagree on the path that they want to go mm. um, or that they should go. Or what they should do. And James, have you had that experience? So the specific example that comes to mind is when I discovered uh, mindfulness as a practice in my life. Mm. And I remember as I got into it, I was like, you know, reading about it. I was experiencing the benefits of it. And I was like, this is for everyone. Mm. And I remember just talking about it with people all the time. Sometimes people were receptive and sometimes people said, that's nice, but not for me. Mm. And in particular, I think of some of the early moments where... I felt really rejected and I was very confused of like, there's this thing that brings so much joy to me and I feel so much confidence in, do I, am I almost like picking sides? Like mm. almost like felt so much confidence in both. Mm. And, and and I think that was at the, the core is that conflict of feeling like one side had to win. I either had to have this practice in my life accepted by someone else mm. or by not passing it along, they were rejecting me, I guess. And when I think about that, it goes back to like, what was I really needing Mm. by offering something that I cared about to someone else and wanting someone else to to, to receive it and take Mm. it on? And there's a lot of nuances in that request. Mm. There's the need to feel seen. Mm -hmm. There's something important to me uh, and I want you to know about it. Yeah. Um, There's the need to have some ease in the relationship. I do this thing, you do this thing implicitly there might be more ease because Mm. we'll like have a shared thing to talk about there's that narrative of i need my friend to be happy i need Mm. my loved one to feel happy Mm. and again that's a little subtle because i and i because i think i'm 
jumping the conclusion that the first, first there's a conclusion that this meditation, this practice mm. will make that person happy or mm. fulfilled. But again, when I really dig into it, if it's the need of, I have this need for someone else, there's probably a need for me that I'm not naming as clearly and I'm projecting mm. it onto someone else. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you kind of share that example, um, I thought about the moments I've been on the other side where I felt like somebody who I loved wanted me to go in a specific direction. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't think that was the direction I wanted to go. And the, the deep existential angst, I, I still feel when that's the case, mm. like at disappointing people who I know love me um, by the choices I'm making that they may not agree with. Um, you know, very often my parents come to mind. I, I've seen it happen in, in lots and lots of examples. I do it, do it with my friends all the time. Mm. I, 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 I freak out at disappointing people in the most ridiculous, like mm. mundane ways. Like um, I had a recent example where um, I just, I, someone texted me and asked if I was going to be in the South Bay yeah. in a couple of days. And I wasn't on it, going to be in the South Bay, but I felt bad saying no. Because I just didn't want to disappoint mm. someone. I was like, why did you ask? Were you planning on it? So it's a bit, it's quite irrational for me. That's all. I'll go in there. Um, but I think, I think at its core, um, the, what comes to mind in those examples and in yours is that I very often associate both difference and even disappointment mm. with distance hmm. in relationships. And so very often the need that's feeling under attack for me is the desire to be close. Yeah. And because so many of my early models of close relationships were relationships of sameness, mm-hmm. you know, mm. sameness to my siblings, sameness to my parents. Part of that is like growing up as immigrants, kind of, we felt like we were different yeah. in a way that made us the same as each other and different from anybody else. And so I often... Um, I find sameness and similarity a beautiful shorthand. And so when I'm faced with difference, let alone Mm -hmm. like one thing, but then disappointment, which is I just think what we feel when those differences now get associated to values Mm. that we really care about, then there is some disappointment, which is real. I think I often feel that closeness threatened. Um, And yet I think in the relationships where I've been able to push through that, um, I think, I think in some ways our relationship has been an example of that. I've just been pleasantly surprised to experience the closeness that can exist past the point of difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I think about fundamentally like Matt's question without even getting to really answering it, you know, that is my deepest hope that as he wrestles with this difference of values between him and his parents and fully knows that that means that there's likely going to be difference of values between him and his daughter. So you go forward that that would not feel like it threatens his closeness to either. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's just my wish for them and for me. love that reflection that 
that so many of the ways we want our needs to be satisfied, mm. they can happen in ways that are very surprising. Mm. And the way you specifically think about, again, this like honoring this really core need to, to feel close. Mm. You know, often I do think it takes uh, kind of taking a step back mm. and some, uh, some grace for ourselves to accept mm. that it can be given in many ways, right? Mm. Like no matter what types of educational career paths that, you know, Matt's ch- child um, takes on, they can still feel that closeness um, mm. in the same ways I know the way Matt has lived his life in the ways that it's been similar or different from his parents. Mm. I know and I've seen and witnessed so much richness and closeness in their relationship. Mm. Mm. Building on this question of, like, again, how do we perhaps pass on or try to connect with loved ones, be it a child or a peer, now, I think of the framework of making asks versus making demands. Mm. And I tie that to this like journey of responsibility. Mm. And I wonder if like, you know, so early on, you are fully responsible as the relationship progresses and the child gains more agency, that sense of responsibility diffuses, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not just the parent's uh, responsibility alone. There's other folks in the community, mm. other caretakers in their life. The child also grows in agency. And mm. by default, instead of everything of being a demand or everything, you know, where there's like full authority from the parent to the child, by default, we have to transition from demands to asks mm. because it is more of a negotiation. It's a negotiation with a child. It's a negotiation with the world. Mm. I think, again, I'm still learning when I really want something, mm. how my default is to make a demand and say, like, there's only one way. And because to make an ask instead of a demand is the process of letting go Mm. to acknowledge that I don't have full control over it Mm. and how there's a sense of mourning of that loss that Mm. because the idea of feeling like you're total control and having total responsibility can feel empowering Mm. in certain ways. Mm. And yet the world doesn't work that way as well. Mm. And uh, I think that transition from someone who makes demands on this world to, to letting go of that, that can also be a really difficult, but also a very, I guess, like life-giving experience. It's not on me. Mm. I can trust others and bring others along the way. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I could not agree more. Just this idea of the, the release that comes from recognizing that there's so many, and we, we've talked about this before, like that there are just so many ways to have my needs met. Mm-hmm. There are more ways to have my needs met that I'm going to have space for. And so the hope that comes from that. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that like that means disappointment is part of the equation. Mm. You know, um, that there is that while we can, uh, that while we absolutely should recognize that there are other ways to have our needs met. We all have dreams and desires for ourselves and the people we love. And, you know, I'm sure for many of our parenting friends, but it's true in all our relationships, that's how our brains work. There's a path that you imagine um, for the people that we love and for ourselves. Mm. And even when we recognize that there are other ways to have that need met, there is something about grieving the passing of one idea or one way that we hoped we had. And um, at least I have found deep solace in just recognizing that, yeah. you know, and normalizing it, not um, allowing ourselves to sit with that disappointment. Yeah. Um, you know, I certainly know, as I think about some of my closest relationships, ways 
I have been disappointed. Yeah. Um, ways I have disappointed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, I find some freedom in naming that and normalizing it so that that stops being the thing that we have to ultimately try and avoid at all turns, right? Yeah. Which going back to my text message is why I then freak out. Like, <laughs> and have existential freak out when someone's like, are you going to be in the South Bay on Wednesday? Like how I avoid that is like, oh, I will not be. And that might be disappointing to you. Yeah. That is real, but we can also get through that. Thomas, I've, I've never felt so warm to hear the words disappointment <laughs> and, 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 and grief. Mm. And in particular, I actually really connect that back to Madam. In awe, we have this like unique vantage point to like observe our parenting friends to go on this journey of love, mm. to like love their child so deeply. Mm. And of course, that's paired with disappointment, mm. with grief. And when I think of Matt like asking this this question, I think of him asking with so much courage. Mm. There will be a time when my child disagrees with something that's important to me, mm. be it about education or how they want to live their life and, and the career they want to pursue. Mm. And I think by even asking that question, he is expressing acceptance mm. that mm-hmm. these feelings will come. And so mm-hmm. I'm just like really moved thinking about you, Matt, right now and mm. how the courage and openness you are expressing in asking this question is such a gift to your child. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of pulling on that um, tale a little bit, I'm, I'm struck by the love that it takes to revisit these things, mm-hmm. you know, to not accept the default answer. Like mm-hmm. I hear Matt really in this question, taking a moment to really try and discern what is the best thing I could do to set my child up for success and being willing to follow that train of thought where it goes, even if it goes in different places than he was raised. Yeah. And and it it inspires in me all the same things that you mentioned, the courage that it takes to do that. Yeah. The deep love um, that it takes to do that. Um, And what I'm encouraged because I'm like between that courage and that love, he'll figure it out. Like, I just have no doubt, right? Like, the, the act of asking that question in this way um, gives me certainty um, that he will be more than equipped to navigate his way to his answer. Thanks so much for listening to Dink. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. If you're interested in having a question answered on an episode, send a recording to dinkpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thanks to our friends and supporters for being so open with sharing your stories, joys, and struggles on the journey of parenthood. And thank you to our listeners as well for the gift of your time. We We love love you all. all.